We've been in a series which began last week uh, in, entitled Peaks and Valleys, uh, the journey to the empty tomb. And really what our, our, our goal is, is, is really just to do a survey of many of the, invite, uh, the uh, events and interactions that Jesus had during his journey to Jerusalem and his death, burial, and then resurrection in the city, because a lot of times, you know, we get into Easter, and we got, you know, we got to deal with the triumphal entry, which we're going to deal with in a couple of weeks, and we got the cross, we got the empty tomb, and the trial, whatever, and lots of pieces just kind of get left aside, and so part of our objective is just to been to, to just get into the scriptures and understand what it is that really happened, to increase our level of biblical understanding, and to me, that's always a positive, whether there's a big theme with it, or a big point, or whatever, us simply understanding the scriptures more completely is, is a spiritual value in and of itself. And, and more so, I think, because of the day we live in. You know, um, we, we live in, you know, we had a, there, there's a way in today's society that we live in that there isn't always an embracing of understanding the scriptures more completely. In fact, uh, there was a, 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 a minister in our region who recently just said, you know, when, when I come across something in the Bible I don't like, I just change it until I like it. And, that, and that's, that, that is an attitude that's out there. So it's really important for us to be able to just look into the Scriptures and understand what it says. But on top of that, we've also been trying to process Jesus' journey because it's, it's full of a lot of off-the-charts great moments. And it's also full of moments that are, are deeply disturbing and painful to him. And... and so we've been kind of looking through the peaks and the valleys of this journey, and through that, trying to understand some of the things that emerge from the Scripture to us and how to process that. And, you know, I, I'm, I, wasn't, I wasn't getting ready for how prophetic this sermon series is going to be for me personally. I shared a little bit about that last week, but, but yesterday it turned out to be one of those days. I mean, you know... Um, Started off yesterday, I had the first chance in a long, long time to go out snowmobiling with my son, right, you know, and, and so we went out and we did 75 miles of trails yesterday, you know, which isn't all that far, actually, in a snowmobile when you're doing 30 miles an hour, right, 25, 30, and first blessing was neither one of these 17-year-old machines broke down by the time we got back, so we didn't get stranded in the woods, but on top of that, it was, it was just a great ride, right, and things are just, we get back, we got them all loaded up, and my wife is out with, with my son's girlfriend, and they're having a great hike through the woods, and so things are just going great, we're talking about how we're going to meet up, maybe have some lunch together, and et cetera, and then the very next thing, our, our, our son's girlfriend's car gets broken into, and my wife's purse gets stolen, you know, so you're spending half the afternoon canceling all your credit cards, figuring out how you're going to replace your car fobs, right, because you can't, you can't unlock your car or drive your car without your fob, and all those kinds of things that go with it, so you, you have this great moment, and then it gets just peaks and valleys, right, it's, that's life, right, seems like life, right, so there's a lot of things for us to learn, and, and so we need to move a little quickly today, so try to keep up, if you will. I can't hear what I'm saying, so I can talk as fast as I want. So we're just going to keep moving. And, and so uh, if you're in Matthew 21, I just want to look through several scenes in this experience. Now, the, the chapter starts with the triumphal entry, right? And, 
And, I, I, and we're just going to take the triumphal entry and set it aside for Palm Sunday in a couple of weeks, right? I'm enough of a traditionalist. I'd rather look at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which is actually the beginning of the last week of the life of Christ. So we're going to deal with some things out of chronological order. So if that really messes you up, then I'm sorry. That's just the way it is, all right? But, but we're going to start with verse 12, okay? So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem with all the fanfare that goes with it. And, and from what we know from Mark's account, he takes a survey of what's going on in the temple, and then he withdraws from the city, and he goes out to Bethany to spend the night. And so <clears throat> the next day on Monday, he comes back into the city, and this is what we see in verse 12. So Jesus went into the temple complex, and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money-changing tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he, and he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you, you are making it a den of thieves. So there's an aspect here where this valley that Jesus is going to enter into, and this is just the first scene of multiple, is, is, is Jesus' disappointment and just people at large, the masses, right? Just, just the way things are and the way things, people were doing things. Now, there are aspects in this journey, and we're going to look at this next week, where individuals let him down, right? Specific people break his heart, if you will. You know, when Judas and Peter and some others. But here it's this larger kind of mass. And the first thing he encounters is, is what he experiences in the temple, right? He shows up in the temple. And the temple is supposed to be a place where people can come and connect with God. Where they can worship God. That they can express their thanks to God. That they can sense that they are with God. But somehow in the midst of that, they've taken all of this that was designed to be a blessing to them. And they've turned it around and used it as a way to somehow bless themselves, right? So they, in other words, they've, they've, they've taken religion. They've taken faith. And they've made it self-centered. And that's one of the things that irks Jesus, right? Is when you take faith. And it's simply about what you can get from it rather than what you can give. Now, listen, there were a lot of dynamics that led to all of this. And, and actually, this experience that's going on in the temple reminds me of some of the, the experiences I've had as I, I've traveled. You know, that, that here you, you go into the temple, you think this is the place where there can be a place of contemplation, a sense of being overwhelmed by the, 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 the majesty and the grandness of God and all those kinds of things. And Herod's temple provided the opportunity for that. This is one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. I will tell you, in my opinion, and I, I haven't studied this, but in my opinion, as I look at things, one of the things that pushed architecture in our building capacities to the limits and developed into the places of God has been a desire to somehow or another to express the magnificence of God, right? And Herod's temple was one of those. He wanted to build something that was so grand, so impressive that it would just blow the Jews away and, 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 and be a, a phenomenon in the ancient world. And that it was, right? So much so that people still go there to pray today, right? To what's left of it, around what's left of it. And, and, and so when you traveled there to worship, when you got there, you, you, you couldn't just use any kind of money. You had to use the temple money, right? So they had their own coins. And so you had to take your denarii or whatever else that you had with you, and you had to trans, you, you had to exchange it for money that you could actually use to give a gift in the temple. 
If you, if you came to offer an offering, you had to have an offering to be able to present, whether it was a turtle dove or a pigeon or a lamb or, or some other form, you know, wheat and barley. So where were you going to get all that stuff? And, and imagine if you lived like in the northern peak of Israel and you brought a turtle dove with you and somehow or another, just before you get to the temple, it breaks a wing and now you can't use it, right? You've carried it all this way and you, now it's blemished and you can't use it. So, so a lot of people just bought, so there was a need for all this stuff, but they had turned it around and said, well, this is what we got to do well, right? And so, and, and, and so they were making it all about them, right? And, and tell you the truth, I don't know how people worship there. And that's really probably what really irked Jesus in this, that when we take religion and boil it down to what it can do for us, that this is a way to make money and this and that or whatever, well, it's all needed. It is, but it's all about you. And, and it somehow it interferes with our ability to connect with God. You know, I, I've, been in, um, I've been in Westminster Abbey in London. I've been in the Sacre Coeur in Paris. I've been in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. I've been in the Vatican and, you know, and all this and, and, and and when you go into these places, if you're going there to somehow connect with God on a Tuesday, good luck. I mean, these are, these are industries, right? There are literally hundreds of people per hour coming in and out of those facilities. And, and they're amazing, but it's not a place to go and connect. And so one of the things that really irks God, what irked Jesus, what brought him into the valley was that here were these things about faith, a place to connect. And it's like, you know, all right, what can I do to get something out of it for myself? Right, and and we're just that's one of those things. Let's let's that's what made him angry at the masses. Let's continue on and look at some more. So, right out of that experience, Jesus begins to heal some men and women, people who are blind and lame. And there's an interaction that goes on with the with the religious leaders because the kids start to sing these praises, Hosanna to him and to, his, you know, the, to the son of David. And they're thinking, well, you know, that's another messianic claim, a lot like yesterday. You should, you know, you, you should tell them to quiet down and stop. And, and Jesus has this interaction with them. And then, then out of that experience, they began to move back out of the city. And so they go back out to Bethany for the night. And on Tuesday morning, they are returning to the city. And we pick up the story in verse 18. So early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry, right? And he, seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were, they were amazed. And they said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered, I assure you, <clears throat> if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, just for those of you who are kind of familiar with the story, in, in the Gospel of Mark, this is an event that occurs over two days. On Monday, as Jesus is going into the city from Bethany, he goes up to this fig tree. The fig tree has leaf on it. It doesn't have any fruit, and he curses it. They come back the next morning, and they're making their way back into the city again from Bethany, and the disciples see the tree, and in the 24-hour period, it's just withered. Chronologically, that probably makes more sense, Right? This, this 
in this particular case, Matthew isn't concerned about the chronology. He's concerned about the symbolism that's going on here. And this flows right out of what was occurring just beforehand. Here you have Jesus doing these miracles, right, in the thing. The, the blind are being able to see. The lame are getting to walk, right? And there are people who are praying. And, and, and the only thing the religious leaders are concerned about is the language that's being used, right? People who are broken are getting made whole, but they're worried about the language that's being used to refer to Jesus, right? And he says, you, but, you know, this is not good. What, what do you mean it's not good? This blind guy over here couldn't see for an entire lifetime. What's not good? Well, you know, you, you're not saying it right. You know, and so he goes out and he acts out a parable to his disciples. He comes across a fruit tree. And it doesn't have any fruit on it. Mark's pretty honest in his account. He says, you know what? It wasn't the season for bearing fruit, right? So the tree had leaves on it. Supposed to have leaves on it, but it wasn't a time to have any fruit. You know, apple trees are going to bloom what? April, Alan? And then you're not going to really have any fruit on them until June, July, and it's not going to be ripe until, you know, September, October, right? And, and yet, here they, Jesus walks up to this tree. It's got leaves on it. It looks healthy, but it's not producing any fruit. It's not supposed to be any That's not the point. The point is that Jesus said, there is a way to live your life like you look spiritually healthy, but you're really fruitless. And that irks me. That irks me. And he says, and that's what the religious leaders are doing, right? They, they got on the fancy robes. They got the big phylacteries on the front of their heads. They got the tassels, things going on in their arms. They got tassels on their prayer shawls. They look the part, but there is no change in their lives, right? It, it, and and for Jesus, he's looking at it and saying, you are giving all the impressions of being passionate for God, but there's absolutely no change to your character. There's no change to your heart for God. There's no change to your spiritual perception. And he says, and that irks me. Not only does it irk me that people take faith and then make it about them. What can I get out of it? And if it doesn't meet that need, then I'll pitch it and find something else. That irks Jesus, right? You know, the whole business thing that's going on in the temple. But then on top of that, he comes across these people and they give all the impressions of saying, you can follow me, but they're absolutely fruitless. And that irks Jesus. And I got to tell you, it still irks Jesus today. If, if you're playing the part of looking like, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm a follower after Christ, but there's no change in character. There's no change in behavior. There's no change in the perception of what God's doing, the heart for God. It irks Jesus. It, it irks. It, it just does. I mean, is that a word we use a lot, irks? I'm going to use it a lot in this sermon, so just get used to it, all right? So, now, then there's a third experience that comes up, right? So, we, we continue through the scenes that are going on. So, Jesus has had the triumphal entry, he surveyed the temple, came back in the next day, had the conflict, which is the whole theme of this chapter, the conflict with the religious leaders in terms of cleansing the temple, and then he has a conflict about the language and the miracles and all that kind of stuff, and he goes out and, and, he, and he acts out this and demonstrates the, the danger of fruitlessness to, the, to his disciples through the barren fig tree, the only, the only destructive miracle that we can actually find in the scriptures of Jesus. Only one. 
You might throw in there the swine that ran off into the things when the, the demons went into them or whatever. But this was the only truly destructive miracle that took place. And so then, but so then on day two now, it's Tuesday, they're back in the temple, and the Jews are like, all right, Jewish leaders are all right, we gotta, we gotta find a way to get rid of this guy. Because he is rattling our cages, and we don't want our cage ra- rattled. Right, because all that's gonna—the only thing that's gonna suffer if our cage is rattled—is the nation, and so we need to step in and protect the nation. So they go to Jesus and they say, "All right, by what authority are you doing this? You know, you've driven out this, you're healing this. By who? By whose authority are you doing this stuff?" And and what they're really trying to do is they're trying to trap Jesus, right? On, on one end, they want Jesus to say, "Well, I'm doing it on God's authority." Ah, you know, blasphemer, heretic, and and it'll be gone. On the other end, they say, well, I'm just doing this on my own. So, well, you, you don't have any credibility to do that on your own, right? And, and so, but Jesus is, he's pretty smart. You know, he's just pretty smart, right? So let's just pick up in verse 23. And we're going to come back to the prayer piece. Somebody says, oh, it's a great story. We're coming back there. Don't just relax, right? Verse 23. When he entered the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders and the people came up to him as he was teaching. And he said, but by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus, <coughs> so Jesus says, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Where did John's baptism come from? From heaven or from men? Now, when he uses the word John there, he's referring to John the Baptist, right? So he's being very specific. Not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist, who had come before Jesus, was already dead, had been decapitated, some other things, and so, so they began to argue among themselves. So they huddle off in a corner, right? So, all right, well, how are we going to answer this question? And they say, you know, if we, if, 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 if we say he's from heaven, in other words, that John was actually a prophet of God, he's going to say to us, well, why didn't you go out to him? Why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you follow his teaching? You know, if God was in it, how come you weren't a part of it? So we can't have that because, you know, said, but if we say it was from men, verse 26, then everybody around us, all this crowd that's gathered for the Passover celebration in the city, they're going to be ticked at us because they really think John's a prophet. So they just said, you know what? We don't know. They took, we don't know. We just don't know. And Jesus says, well, you know what? Neither am I going to tell you. If you're not going to give me an answer, I'm not going to give you an answer by whose authority I do these things. But then he goes on and he tells a parable. <clears throat> says, let me tell you this short little parable. What do you think? A man had two sons. I got two kids, right? I got two sons. He went to the first one and said, my son, go to work in the vineyard today. And the kid says, eh, I don't want to. I got plans. Maybe tomorrow. Yet later he changed his mind and he went. And he went. The man went to the other son and said the same thing. And he says, Absolutely. I'll do it right away. But he never went. Which one of the two you think did his father's will? And they said, well, obviously the first one. And he said to him, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. They may have said no originally, but when John the Baptist showed up and began proclaiming the way of the Lord, they started to come in. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes, they did believe him. But, but you, when, when you saw it, 
You didn't even change your minds then and believe him. And so when Jesus is, is, is looking at this, he's, he, he uses the parable of the two sons, right? One says no, and then has a change of heart. He repents, and then he actually goes and does what he's been asked to do. The other one says, oh, absolutely. You can count on me. I'm on your team. I'm the faithful son. And then he says, you know what? Plans change. I got to do something. And he just doesn't go. And Jesus looks at those things, and, and, and the thing that really irks Jesus, this case, is, is and I'm going to use my language, is lip service faith. That the kinds of ways in which we can talk a good game of faith, but when it really comes down to the way that we're living our faith, we're doing our faith, it, 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 there's just no match. Right, you know that that it's interesting. You know, there's a there was a song that was out that a, a while ago by Casting Crowns. It, you know, it's, and it's, it's called um, the Between the Altar and the Door. Right, some of you know that song. Right, we we can we can respond to God and be very passionate about what it is that we've heard God say to us to do, but by the time we get to the parking lot, we're already distracted and no change ever comes, and it's just lip service. Right, and. Maybe another way to, 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 to kind of refer to this is it's, it's when, when there is no connection between our conscience, what we know is right and wrong in the eyes of God, when there's no meaningful, sustained connection between our conscience of what we know is right and wrong in the eyes of God and the actual commitments that we make with our lives. And, and, and that's what he's looking at, these guys. He says, you're looking at it, and, and you see what John the Baptist is doing, and et cetera, but you refuse to commit to it. You know, you're, 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 you'll give the lip service of being faithful to God and all that kind of stuff, but you know what? The people who said no and rebelled against God and clearly were outside of God's blessing and et cetera, when they turn and actually go to the field, when they respond to God's work and they come in, they're way ahead of you in the game because it's not about lip service. It's about taking your commitment and connecting it with your, <coughs> your spiritual conscience. And that's what, and so Jesus just gets irked at this, right? Their refusal to respond, it just, it just drives them nuts, right? It just makes them angry in the midst of all of that. And so you, you look at this, and, and the, the first piece for, for us, I think, as we process this passage of Scripture is, we, we don't want to be one of those people that irks Jesus. We don't want to be a part of the crowd that irks Jesus, right? We don't want to make faith about ourselves. We don't want to make it about, about looking the part but truly being fruitless, right? We, we don't want to look at it as, as just giving Jesus lip service and not being responsive to him and just, you know, being able to say, well, you know, I, I know what's right, so it doesn't really matter if I do what's right. And we, we don't want to be doing any of those kinds of things. But... At the same time, you and I, even as faithful people, can live among people, be a part of a crowd, if you will, a society that reflects a lot of these things, right? We can be among people that give a little lip service, that are fruitless, or, and et cetera. And, and so how do you process some of these things? And how do, how do you, when you get into that valley when, when people are just annoying spiritually, has that ever happened to you? You know, you had, I, hopefully you, like me, you've had a lot of people in your life who've just been a tremendous spiritual blessing. And there's some other people that you've looked at and say, I, I, I don't want to be anything like them at all. They just, they just give 
church and et cetera, a bad name, right? They, they give faith a bad, you know, and, and, and we deal with it and we get frustrated with it. And how do you and I deal with the valleys when, when the world as a whole, when society as a whole, when culture as a whole just kind of just wants to draw us, draw us down? And I just want to throw out a couple of ideas to you and then really zero in on the last one, which takes us back to this incredible teaching of Jesus in verse 21. The, the first thing I tell you that in, in order to deal with the valleys that are generated by just the discouragement that comes from the way life is done in the world, and sometimes even in the church, is the first thing I tell you to do is just celebrate what you can. Just celebrate what you can. Look at how the cup is half full and not just how it's half empty. You know, I had a friend of mine a long time ago, and I think I've quoted this before in my years of preaching here, is that he told me, you know, just celebrate, accent the positive because the negative has a life on its own. You know, and, and I, I look at Jesus in here, and, and he's, you know what? He's thrilled that people are getting healed, and he takes encouragement from that. He's thrilled that the children recognize what God's doing and use the language that they do, Right? He, 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 he's, 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 he's overjoyed that the sinners, the ones who said no, are now changing a heart and actually going to the vineyard and becoming a part of the kingdom of God. Find the things among God's activity that you can celebrate. And there's always going to be those there. Always going to be there. Sometimes we're going to look for them, but they're always going to be there. Second thing. And this is a part of the, of the text that we didn't look at, but it flows out of what Jesus was teaching in verse 33 and forward with the parable of the vineyard owner. You've you got to remember how the story is going to end. The villain or the villains are not going to win. The hero is. Jesus knows that the tomb's going to be empty come Sunday. And so the rest of it all takes on perspective. And like the vineyard owner where he's getting rejected over and over and over again, the moment's going to come when justice is going to prevail. And so in the end, just make sure you kind of know how the story ends. But here's the third thing that I really want you to see. And this is where it kind of all comes together. In verse 21, as Jesus is talking about the fig trees and, and, the, and the disciples are looking at it and saying, wow, I mean, you cursed the thing yesterday. And today, it's totally dead, right? Today, it's compost material. You know, wow, you know? And he's saying, listen, don't be impressed by that. He says, I got to tell you, I assure you that if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted and thrown into the sea, it's going to be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And I wish I had a lot of time to unpack this, but first of all, let me just state the obvious. Jesus is not trying to talk to us about the power of landscaping, all right? That's not what he's trying to talk to us about. Jesus is not trying to talk about, you know, hey, you know what? You can just have these random, insignificant shows of power. Like, you can say to this mountain, get up, and gone, right? They're probably looking at the Mount of Olives, if not even the Holy Temple Mount, as he's using this terminology. So it's, it's significant stuff. But this isn't just about, you know, landscaping. Oh, yeah, I just want to move that tree over here in my yard. If I just sit on my front porch and pray enough and have enough faith, it's somehow going to move. and get. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? And, and the other thing to remember is that what Jesus is talking here is, is not the power of our faith, but he's talking about the power of God. 
But he is talking about the necessity of our faith to release the power of God in the world. And, and, and it really comes down to, to, to faith again. And, and the thing you need to remember is that faith begins with humility. I think a lot of times we, we approach this kind of a passage and we want to say, well, it's my in, in the intensity of my sense of conviction that this is what should happen and wants to happen. It, it's, that's not the issue. I think the issue is really the intensity of your dependence on God. Because faith always begins with humility. That's, that's what God told Paul, right, when he had the thorn in the flesh and he's praying for it to go. And he, says, he, listened, he said, my power is perfected in weakness. And so faith, if you're going to have the faith that can change things, can change what happens on the Temple Mount, you know, etc. If you're going to be the kind of player that God can use to release his power in the world, you have to be the most humble person before God. And so when you're praying, when you're saying, God, you know what? I don't understand it, but I understand that you've designed me to be a world changer. But I'm here on my knees and I'm talking to you in prayer. And you know what? I ain't qualified to play that role. I am not smart enough. I'm not insightful enough. I'm not keen enough, etc. God, I, I, you know what? I, I don't even know what is best. Show that to me. Give me great conviction about that. And then as I join you, and praying what you showed to me, God's power gets released in a powerful way in the world. But when you look at what Jesus is teaching here from that perspective, that the, the, the kind of faith that changes the world is built on complete humility before God, it ties all of these events in chapter 21 together. Because the reason why these people irked Jesus is because they weren't humble before God. We know how this is supposed to work. We've already got the answers. We're the protectors of the people. You know, we know, and, and, and there's no humility, right? And so in that lack of humility, there is no change. There's no transformation. There's no response to God. And in the same way, at the far end, in order for us to be the world changers that God calls us to be, the kind of people that can engage with God, release his power, and see mountains moved, figurative mountains moved, it really takes the fact that we're humble enough to say, God, I know I'm not that person, but I know that you in me can be that kind of person. And it all ties together in humility. And really, in many ways, that's just a wonderful segue to the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper, in all of the things it seeks to teach us, it clearly tries to show us on a regular basis that humility is where we stand before God. Because we're not the ones who earned our way to the top side of the cross or crawled out of the empty tomb. It's out of the fact that Jesus died for us, gave himself for us, and it's only as we rely on him that we actually enter into a relationship with God. It's all foundational, the fact that we stand before God in the position of humility for him to use. I'm going to invite those who are going to help serve the Lord's Supper to go ahead and take their spots in the back. And and I just want to read Matthew's account of the very first Lord's Supper to us from chapter 26. As Jesus reminded us that our salvation has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what he's done on the cross. 
So as they were eating, and this is Thursday night, just two days later in the life of Jesus, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. And after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. God, we're grateful that Jesus was willing to humble himself, to become a servant, become one of us, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Father, I pray in these moments that we would be humble, that we would accept that Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. No matter how hard we try, and we think we can somehow earn the favor of God and prove to him that we're worthy, we never can be, and that we'd accept that humbly. But with that, Father, the power of change, the power of relying on you, power of believing that you can do anything in us would take over. So God, call us to your table today to remind us to be humble before you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.